0: This episode is sponsored by Unique One Network.
1: We need decentralization. We need people in control of their own lives. We need people to be able to speak truth to power. We need people to be able to speak and to be heard. If everything is going to be determined about the person by just looking at how the system identifies them as being who they think they say they are, then we are missing the point about democracy altogether
2: money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael
3: Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. Just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment
2: advice. And now, here's Sheila Warren.
0: Hello, and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Sheila Warren. Today is a very special episode for me because we're focusing on both a topic and a country that are very close to my heart. Now, I know it's out of fashion at the moment in crypto circles to talk much about blockchain, but I still have an outsized interest in the technology that underlies the applications we talk about a lot on this show. Perhaps that's because I came to the technology through a web freelance, after reaching out to some friends for ideas about how to decentralize the storage of a data lake of the social enterprise where I was working. Of course, at the time, I didn't use the term decentralized and I didn't even know what I was looking for. But when a friend idly mentioned I look into blockchain, It didn't take me long to realize that this new technology held tremendous potential and not just in financial services. I should note that, as is true for many of us who've thrown ourselves into the crypto ecosystem, my fascination with the concepts and principles that underlie decentralization, things like agency, empowerment, and equity, goes way back before my introduction to blockchain, way back before the Satoshi White Paper, all the way back to when I was a kid. I'm what's often called a dual culture kid, meaning that I spent a whole bunch of my childhood in various parts of two countries. In my case, the U.S., where I was born, and India, where I spent a lot of my early childhood and school holidays with relatives from both sides of my family. As a result, Indian culture is in many ways as much a part of my mental model as American culture is. When I was a deeply impressionable tween, I wound up meeting one of my mom's many cousins for the first time. Usha Ramanathan, or Usha Chifi, as I call her, is a lawyer by training which, not coincidentally, is a big part of the reason that I went to law school. She's also a famous, though she'll object to that adjective, human rights activist who has worked her entire career to make sure that the rights of historically excluded persons are respected. Starting in 2009, she tirelessly challenged the controversial Aadhaar digital identity program in India, objecting to both its privacy and its security risks and she was such a strong and effective advocate that Access Now gave her one of their Human Rights Hero Awards in 2018. You can imagine the impression that meeting this woman had on this idealistic young kid, and you can probably imagine what a kick it is for me to be able to host her on the pod today. But let me start by providing a very brief background on Aadhaar for those who aren't familiar. Simply put, Aadhaar is the world's largest biometric ID system. An Aadhaar number is a 12-digit unique identity number issued by the Unique Identification Authority of India, the UIDAI, to all Indian residents based on their biometric and demographic data. Aadhaar data is collected by the UIDAI, which was set up by the Government of India in January 2009 and further cemented under provisions of the Aadhaar Act in July 2016. Aadhaar is pretty much the opposite of a centralized system. And in fact, the honeypot of data it presented got the government into hot water on more than one occasion. In addition, obtaining an Aadhaar number required an individual to divulge highly personal information and as everyday tasks like grocery shopping or getting petrol or life milestones like getting married or applying to university began to require the having of an other number, many citizens became increasingly uncomfortable. We'll get deeper into the various controversies shortly. Also, while we won't necessarily go deep into the legacy of colonialism in India the way we have on some of our other episodes, I'll note that August 15th marked the 75th anniversary of Indian independence, and the shadow cast by the preceding 200 years of oppression is a long one. In addition to my aunt, I'm absolutely thrilled to have on today's show my extraordinary friend and web denizen, Marta Belcher. She's a pioneer in the area of blockchain and crypto law, who serves the General Counsel of Protocol Labs, Chair of the Filecoin Foundation, and Special Counsel to EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. A few weeks ago, she testified in front of the Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs about cryptocurrency. Before we bring our distinguished guests, let's welcome my co-host, Michael Casey. Hey, Michael.
3: Hey, Sheila. How's it going?
0: Yeah, it's going. <laughs> I think, you know, uh, as usual, we could can, we can do a huge recap of the news of the week and the crypto ecosystem and and everything that's been going on since our last recording.
3: Yeah, well, two historical events, it seems like. We had the 50th anniversary of the the end of the Bretton Woods system. Yep. Part one earlier this weekend. And and yeah, the Indian 75th anniversary of Indian independence. And so it does feel like we're in the midst of a lot of historic moments. We've got the September 11th, 20th anniversary coming up at a rather ignominious moment, of course, in Afghanistan. So, yeah, sort of the echoes of history and past mistakes sort of swirling around us at the moment. You know, I was just thinking, listening to your monologue there, and and I was thinking about, okay, can we look at some of these initiatives that happen and recognize, at least start with the acknowledgement that they probably begin with uh, good intent? And I'm actually thinking of a parallel here between Adar and and Apple's latest controversy. I'm sure Martha's going to have something to say about that. You know, with regards to trying to you know stop child self sex trafficking and abuse of children via iPhones. It's reasonable to understand that these initiatives are done in good good faith. Because, well, um, well hear me uh, out. Yeah, for I'll a bear second. with you. I'll hear let you up, finish. Hear me out for a second. Certainly with in the case of India, I mean, the lack of an identity, the idea that digital identity could be the solution for the unbanked, for all the excluded of the world who do not have access to anything because they don't have a way to prove their credit worthiness or, or anything else, you know, it has a romantic appeal to it, right? And so therefore, okay, let's go in and build something big and traumatic. And, you know, the Indian government being what it is, wants to do it all from the top. But the lack of appreciation for the multiple problems that you then create by creating these centralized honeypots and the sort of sheer danger, in some respects, it's the lack of appreciation for, and it is a little odd that Apple would not be aware of this, of course, but that network of information, that insidious amount of control that comes from all the data that is captured in this sophisticated algorithms and everything else, not recognizing that means it seems to me that these problems just emerge out of ignorance in many respects. But there may, of course, be a more sinister story behind it. And I'm really looking forward to hearing your aunt, Usha, tell us a little bit about what the history of that is.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I think these are always values-based approaches, right? And it depends on kind of what you value and what you're positing as oppositional to that value system. So a lot of things are rolled out in the name of ease of use or convenience or efficiency, and that is certainly a value. And one could argue that you know, from a certain lens that can be productive and helpful. I think some of the technological rollouts are often in the name of efficiency, ease of use, and convenience. And I think that at this point in time, we ought to be very cautious if that's the kind of prime directive for any kind of initiative, right? Because we've definitely seen the major dark side of a lot of kind of initiatives that began in that way. I could go on about, you know, the road to hell, et cetera, with good intentions. But I do think anytime you're dealing with biometric information, the standard of care is just elevated. You want friction, you want
3: delays, you do not want efficiency when you're talking about biometric information. That's exactly
0: right. You know, and so I'm sure we'll go into at some point during this conversation, you know, issues around the use of data, humanitarian data within refugee camps or times of crisis. There's a really great body of work led by all kinds of people around the world, including my aunt, but also Matt Raymond, you know, the HHI out of Harvard, just a whole bunch of examination of like, why do we suspend rights in the context of crisis and call that okay? Why is that okay? If anything, shouldn't we be more protective of rights in that particular context or have a kind of mode of engagement that ensures that we're not trampling all over people's Privacy and security, right? Because we're trying to get them, understandably, very important resources like water or food or medical aid or whatever it is. No one's contesting the necessity of those in times of crisis. Thinking about Haiti is a very current example. Mm. Nevertheless, you know, if anything, I think our level of care needs to be such that we are providing the highest standard we possibly can. Absolutely. But yeah. Certainly, more qualified guests than than me to speak mm. to these topics. So maybe we'll turn first to to you. And maybe just a little history about Adar. I think there's some stuff that made it through out of the Indian press into the kind of world press. At this point, I think people just take it for granted that Adar's always been around. And some of the sort of controversy isn't necessarily as talked about today as it was even a few years ago. So if you can walk us through how this all started, how you got involved with this, what the things that really sparked
1: your concerns were, and we'll kind of go from there. We have uh, different points from where we start understanding this uh, issue. The first thing is that you have your 9-11 moment. In terms of these kinds of technology, our moment really was the, what we call the Kargil war in 1999. It became a time when we saw an enemy at the border and needed to identify, and the state felt that it needed to identify people within the border so that we can make a distinction between friend and foe. And that was like a benign beginning. It quickly changed within, from 1999 to 2003 it shifted from one border to the other. The Pargil problem was with Pakistan. But by 2003, when they were changing the Citizenship Act to say that we needed a national register of citizens and everyone needs to get onto this, we had already shifted to Bangladesh and illegal migration. So it's a hodgepodge of ideas. But the one that, the, uh, that industry picked up, and that's what ultimately prevailed, is the one which said that uh, there is a lot of... you know It's the time in the early 2000s We had a lot of problem with our uh, service delivery of of food, especially. And there were a lot of activists working on this, trying to change the system so that what was to be sent to the poor would actually reach the poor. Technology stepped in, the technology company stepped in and said, all right, we'll give you an answer. Now, the problem with this, one major problem, is that technology companies don't know the poor. They've never dealt with them. It's not their business. And, uh, you know, they are as far away from... Uh, you know, from the poor as anybody can be, because they are, you know, in, you, I don't even have to explain this. So they don't know what the lives of the poor are, but they were looking at producing technologies and, you know, the uses of technology, which would control the lives of the poor. In the name of providing identity to people, see, the, the, way, they, the way they identified the problem was to say that The uh, poor are not able to get welfare. They are not able to reach their entitlements because they don't have an ID that they can show the state. This was actually not, you know, it was proved to be completely wrong and misplaced by the time the project was a little way through. So if you look at, you know, we have 1.3 billion people. Now we have more. Uh, At that time, we had almost 1.3 billion people. And they found at the beginning, when half the population had been covered, that less than 1% of the people did not have an ID which they could use. So why were you producing this project? Because you, didn't, you, know, you were just looking for an, a justification for the project, not identifying a need. Second thing is that they were offering it as a solution. Now you can never offer a solution without knowing what the problem is, that's one thing. But we've also shifted from there over the years where first it's offered as a solution, then as a service, then they say that this is just creating infrastructure. Then it becomes platform, platformization. And it keeps changing and moving further and further away from people. So in the beginning when they started, those working in the right to food, right to work, people working on right to housing. Now, these were the people who were saying, this is not a good project for the, for the poor. And the reason is this, first, everybody knows and everybody knew then that the digital divide is huge. People will lose control over their own lives if you have to hand it over to technology. The second thing is when they started the project, they had no clue whether biometrics can or will work. In fact, they knew that they did not know. So it's not just that they did not know, they knew they did not know. And you had the mission director of the project even say in an interview as late as 2011, much, you know, over a year after they started collecting all all this uh, biometric data, that, well, we might be able to get everyone onto the database by, you know, getting the demographic information and various kinds of biometrics, especially migrant workers may not be laborers, manual workers, and we have a, lot, a large number of them, they may not be able to use the biometric to identify themselves because their fingerprints would be frayed. You can't ask migrant workers to preserve their fingerprints, right? And then, of course, they found that, you know, older people, it doesn't work. Children, it doesn't work. You have to keep going back and updating. And over the years, we've seen that the is, you know, that when they began in 2010, one of the slogans of this project, which was uh, you know, put out by Mr. Dilikani, who was heading the project, was uh, that roti kapra, or makan is now passing. Which is to say, food, clothing and shelter is now passing. What you need now is a bank account, a mobile phone and an Aadhaar, All three being numbered. So they were working at reducing people to numbers because the three ideas which have been dominating this project are unique, And for a long time, we thought uniqueness came from biometrics, I mean, in the beginning. And then we realized, no, it's about being able to uniquely identify every person by their number. And then that it will be ubiquitous. So it has to be in every database. It has to get on everywhere. And then it will be universal. So everybody must have it. This was the object of the project. And now we find now most recently we had an uh, we had an issue with this because the system hasn't been created so that the poor can use it and can you know can have services delivered to them. So recently one of our uh, you know one of our academic activists, uh, John Dres, had uh, written a piece with his colleague where he said that you know this uh, one of those who's entitled to social security pension, who's entitled to uh, sub- state support for uh, food. Now, she was finding that that she was not able to get onto the systems because while in the beginning they said that this will help you reach your entitlement, very quickly this idea of inclusion became a point of exclusion to say that if you don't have this number, if you're not able to link it with whatever system we are asking you to link it with, if you can't identify yourself through this number at the point that you come for delivery, then you will stay excluded. So they came and said, listen, she has lost that card on which she had it. She doesn't have her number and there is no way of retrieving. And the person who had been mission director then and who's head of our, uh, you know, the health ID system that they are trying to put in place, which is just an extension of the UI, he turns around and says, we told you right, we knew all along that this would not work. That's why we told you that the number in full should have been on every system. Then she could have just gone and got the number from anywhere. So you know, it is a project that was made by the for the techies. It was made so that they could displace Silicon Valley. Like they used to say, you know, Silicon Valley caters to one billion of the world population. We will cater to the other six billion. That was the ambition. So you know, if if people, which is why when uh, they started, you know, when young people started dying, old people started dying because they were not able to link their UID number, that's the other number, to their you know food database. And therefore, they couldn't access food. They were too poor to be able to do anything about it. It's not even like they hadn't enrolled. The second stage of linking, they were not able to. You know, when they said that they died, in an interview with one of our senior uh, journalists, Veet Sanvi, Mr. Nillikhan, said, well, on the whole, he, he pointedly asked the question three times. A 11-year-old dies because the system doesn't let her reach her food. Doesn't it bother you? I mean, is it okay? And he ends up with the answer that on the whole, I would say it's okay.
3: That's the project, uh, Usha. I mean, the thing that seems disturbing about this—an extra thing disturbing beyond the picture you paint of—in contrast to the well-intended concept that I raised at the beginning—that there really was something far more sinister behind it. In addition to that, is the idea of how do you actually get out of this? Is there anything that activists like you and anybody who is pushing against the Aadhaar system? That you have in mind to unwind, it feels like one of those horrible Byzantine things that just takes over our lives and becomes extremely difficult to break down—a kind of a leviathan. What is the answer? How do you undo what was done?
1: Okay, the first thing is I—I would, I really wouldn't use the word sinister because sinister has—it's uh, like it's being done by forces that we don't understand. These forces we understand. There's nothing sinister about. They are just, you know, overly ambitious and avaricious. And the tragedy is that we see a complete lack of compassion. Sinister actually excuses them too easily, and I don't think I want to give them that uh, escape. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you should understand. In India, mysticism is, an, is quite normal, okay. so sinister would work, but lack of compassion would be. But on what does one do about this? Actually, you know, from the beginning we've been saying that this could be either a project that is uh, technologically good, but a bad idea—really bad idea. Or it is technologically bad and a really bad idea. As it works out, it's technologically bad and a really bad idea. So if you look at the biometric database, you look at the demographic database, actually, you can't look at it. That's the point. It has never been audited. It has excluded people. It has said that when you go in for enrollment, it will say you're already on the system, whereas you're not on the system. There is no feedback. There is nothing. So it's basically about amassing people onto that website, onto that database, and it works through the system where the state says that, and the, the, in the current uh, dispensation does believe that, believes that they've inverted the relationship between state and people. So it's not the people who own the state, the state owns the people. So you've got to obey. And if you don't manage to obey, then you can't be part of that. There is no entitlement. What we've been saying for the longest time, and it's very interesting, you know, we have a new in this COVID time. They've created this COVID app. So everybody has to register onto that app to get vaccinated. So you can't get vaccinated, get yourself vaccinated without being on that app. Ever since uh, the UID came in, you know, Aadhaar came in, every system that is set in place is by a small set of people. They, call, you know, they are the group who have created what is called India Stack. And that whole imagination is only about creating databases upon, databases upon databases upon databases upon databases. And in this COVID app, when people had to register, they needed any way for, you know, vaccination was as important then as, you know, tracking people. So they said, okay, if you don't do it with another, do it with whatever government-given ID that you have. The same head of you know, Universal Health ID, he had to admit that not even 14%, 1-4% of the people who registered onto the COVID app registered with the UI, they all use some other ID. So I actually think that we've reached that point where either people are not able to use this number and nobody knows it. I mean, no one's really bothering to find out what is happening with it, or people are choosing not to use it because they don't see it as the kind of ID that gives them what they want. It's It's become something that you do when you are coerced to put a number in, otherwise you don't use it. So people are withdrawing from it in various ways. And it's not being recognized because the moment you recognize it, you'll have to actually audit not just the system itself, but the usefulness of the system. You know, in, uh, in our work, we very often say that we don't set a target and feel we failed if we have not achieved that target. For instance, the best thing would have been to dismantle this whole system. It's dismantling itself. In one of our, one of the documents that Mr. Uh, Nilikani was chair of in that report, they call this, in the UIDAI, they call it the self-cleaning system, which means... He says, you know, garbage in, garbage out. And when you're looking at all these uh, revenue uh, systems, where you're going to introduce the databasing model again, and where you're going to privatize the database, they say, we all know that it will be garbage in, garbage out. So we have created in the UIDAI a self-cleaning system, which doesn't mean that the system will clean itself. It means you yourself have to go and clean it up or you can't use it. So people who can't clean it up, drop off. We call it civil death. And that's, you know, that's the kind of thing that happens. So there are various ways in which systems destroy themselves from within. There's so
2: many blockchains and NFT marketplaces these days and none of them work together. Introducing Unique One Network, the easy way to build multi-blockchain defi enabled NFT marketplaces where instead of picking your favorite blockchain, you let your users and creators pick for themselves. Powered by Polkadot, Unique One Network lets you service NFT creators and collectors across art, photography, philanthropy, gaming, finance, and more. So do yourself a favor and head over to Unique now to learn more. That's Unique One.network to learn more.
3: This idea of populations getting to this broken, but there's a biological element to this that I find quite interesting that eventually it just becomes unsustainable and and dies, you know, and we have to invent some other way. I think that's yep. the only way I imagine that goes, but that's it's fascinating to think yeah. this through. Yeah. I
1: think they would be looking to morph it rather than let it die. And we are watching that. Evolution.
0: You know, there's a couple of things I just want to reach out and flag from what you've said, Chiti, which one is this story of the older individual who wasn't, didn't have the access to the fingerprint or to the card and so wasn't able to get groceries, which is, I mean, that at scale, and these are very real stories. And I know that you had, there was a whole team collecting these stories from different parts of the country and all of that at one point in time. There's often criticism, I think, of decentralized systems of saying, well, no one's in charge. Who do you go to to get access to the system or whatever? But here, you know, I think you're seeing an example of where at scale, there was nobody to go to, to get access to the system. It didn't function. And there was a centralized authority, if you want to call it that, you know, in place, right? There was in theory, at least some kind of process or whatever, that I'm sure involves standing in line for four days and, you know, whatever didn't work. Right. So it's an interesting kind of parallel because that again, is a criticism of decentralized systems in which the rest of us are kind of really spending a lot of our time and focus. The other thing I think is that I, I think of this as such an important object lesson. So just in terms of if you don't focus on what is the problem, who is the community that you're trying to support uh, and you don't embed that point of view and start with that predicate, you're going to fail. I mean, you just are kind of inevitably going to fail. Maybe not right away. Maybe there'll be some limited modicum of success, but ultimately you can't succeed if you don't locate and centralize, as it were, the community that you're really trying to support, right? And so here, you know, debatable whether that was the cover for the activity or actually intention, you know, I mean, you are more well <laughs> embedded in whether what was real there or what was not. But we can certainly say that there was no inclusion of these communities or otherwise margin- historically excluded is the phrase I prefer, historically excluded people from these systems in the build, the design, any of the considerations. Therefore, there was, it, it's impossible to expect that would actually work. So one thing I do want to talk about, though, is in some of these systems, there's also a lot of concern about surveillance. Is that something that's come up in UIDA and and other in general? Like, was that a a concern at the beginning? Privacy is one thing, but the idea that the government is tracking you in kind of a very active way, this Orwellian kind of way. Can you comment on that and and its relevance in this ecosystem?
1: We actually call it, uh, you know, when we have our fun discussions, if I may, on this, we think of it as when Bentham meets Kafka. (laughs) It's that kind of a scenario. So, you know, see... It's true that uh, industry wanted, or, you know, business interests wanted, but you have to sell it to a government because remember that in this project, the state was a very important component because they had to coerce people. They had to use their power of coercion, force people to get onto this database. People were not running to get onto this database. So you had to make them, and they wanted it all within a short time. So the, the one major thing that was used was state coercion. Now, how are you going to sell it to the state by saying, I will collect data and I will do whatever. So tracking people was the sales pitch. So with the Manmohan Singh government, which came before, which was like much more, uh, you know, tuned into capitalism where they had a problem. It was slightly different in the sense they had a problem with like the World Bank has World Bank keeps saying that, you know, you've got to streamline your welfare system, social delivery systems, but actually what, it, you know, everybody knows that what it ends up doing is squeezing people out of it. So basically that whole, the whole conversation on that goes in a way where it says that there is leakage, you know, people need to be tracked to see that no wrong person is collecting this. So you put a huge onus on the poor to come and identify themselves every time and to say, I am a legitimate claimant to this entitlement. And that's been the kind of game that we saw in the liberalization era, where they said everything has to go to the market. State should be pulling out of everything, including welfare. So you give them money if you want, let them come and buy from the market, but you should not be providing anything else. So in the first few years, the project survived on speaking about the poor and those who are connected with their systems. And I'm using the poor very generically. Uh, you know, uh, all those connected to the system as being people who needed to be tracked and, you know, you needed to make sure that nobody else was coming in. So to catch the bad guy, all the good guys and all the guys who needed all the support that the state could offer, would have to subject themselves to a system that may not work for them. But it was experimentation on a nation nationwide basis. The whole population was the experimental, uh, you know, they we the lab, the whole population. And that's kind of extraordinary. But they did it anyway because, you know, you had a tech person coming in and saying, I'll show you how it can be done. And that's how, you know, so the tech person then gets inducted into the government with the rank of a cabinet minister, but without being a cabinet minister, which means that he didn't really have to enter parliament and he didn't have to face public questioning, but he would have all the privileges of a cabinet minister of that rank. And that's how they went ahead with the project. But we've seen that since 2014, which is when the present government came into power, Uh, And especially from 2017, where suddenly they just opened this up and said that nobody is entitled to anything unless you go to every system and embed your number in. We want to see you. It's also important that although the earlier dispensation was a much more liberalization, capitalist kind of dispensation, they still started alongside the UID project, another project called Grid, which is a national intelligence grid where they were saying that they would be able to link up from multiple databases to be feeding it to, to multiple security and intelligence agencies. So it became an intelligence operation. With and when we asked for the National Intelligence Grid to just give us the, you know, through the right to information process, Asim, that you've made a presentation of what the National Intelligence Grid is to the cabinet. Just share with us what the project is, not what you're finding in the project. They waited for a little till they could notify themselves out of the Right to Information Act, saying, you know, till then they were saying, we are just a pipeline. So we are, you know, we are, there's nothing, no said national, no security, no, you know, no intelligence, we're just a pipeline. The moment the question was asked, they said they hid themselves behind being a security establishment and therefore not being amenable to the RTI. These projects don't stand alone, they come along with a whole host of other things. For the state, knowing where everyone is, what everyone is doing, and converting, see, this is a real, I think, uh, in a, conceptually, it's been very important with this government that they really believe, you know, it's like the opposite of Snowden. When Snowden happened in America, we all watched, and I must say that I don't know what the American public thinks of Snowden, but he's a great hero for all of us here. Because we do need to hold the state in check. And the state hides behind secrecy much too much and much too often. But when Snowden spoke, the American establishment said something that was very interesting for us. They said that we don't do it to Americans; it's a foreign intelligence thing. We only do it. here. It's the opposite. They said we are not—you know—it's our people. We can do what we want with them. Right. Yeah,
0: That's <laughs>
3: such a good point. It's such a such an important point.
0: I want to bring in Marta, um, and Marta, really, on this topic of state actors, you know, privacy, surveillance. I know you've done a lot of work with you know, EFF and others and kind of thought a lot about these topics. And so maybe the question I'll pose to you is how do, if at all, decentralized systems play in this place? Like, How do they limit the abilities of state actors to obtain access to this kind of information? And what are alternatives that centralized systems can, can pose for us?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I think for me getting into cryptocurrency and being interested in it from a civil liberties angle, the most important thing about cryptocurrency and and other decentralized technologies is that it gives you the ability to to make financial transactions, to engage in, in transactions online in a way that is fully anonymous. I think for me, just hearing about this is sort of making my, my skin crawl, thinking about the ways that this amount of data can be used, the amount of mass surveillance that can be enabled by this type of database. And so from a decentralized technology perspective, having the ability to actually transact anonymously is so important and not having to identify yourself in order to make transactions online, just as one example, I think is so important.
3: One of the areas that a bunch of folks work on in, in the blockchain and crypto world, matter is the establishment digital self-sovereign identity solutions, right? And it comes from this perspective that we need identity. I, sort of, I suppose I sometimes sit on the fence in this, because I, I've always found in some respects the, the Bitcoin and, and sort of crypto ideal very romantic that, no, let's just find a way to transact, as you put it, completely anonymously, right? But the reality is, so much of the existing world depends upon this self identification concept that we've got. We've built entire economic systems that depend upon the idea that I can trust you, Marta, to prove that you, Marta, are who you are. So I wonder is there a way? Is it possible for us to sort of jury rig a decentralized, privacy preserving model onto the concept of identifying the human being? As a proxy for the world that we've created, or should we abandon the whole thing altogether and just try to like try to live anonymously? Because that seems impossible.
2: Well, I mean, I think that when you start thinking about how decentralized technologies might work with regards to identity, I think reasonable minds can differ as to whether that's a good idea. But I think that there's at least a really interesting line of thinking around this idea of being able to sort of use zero knowledge technologies in order to be able to query a database without decrypting it and figure out what someone is saying is true without actually having to have any one person have access to an entire database. I remember in one of the earliest conversations I was having about decentralized technologies, I was talking with someone about the Enigma project in its early days, specifically the refugee type of example He was really excited about this technology because he really loved the idea of being able to potentially use the technology to be able to query a database and without decrypting the information within it, figure out information about particular individuals in order to facilitate refugee aid. So again, whether or not this is something that is technology that will move far is reasonable minds can differ. I will admit that I tend to prefer fighting for our rights to engage with the world anonymously. I really do think that we live in a world where people believe that privacy and anonymity are bad and enable bad things, right? That, that anonymity is something that enables crime. You know, it's really a misconception. Privacy and anonymity are not bad. They're not illegal. And I think they're absolutely essential for civil liberties, regardless of the technology or the type of transaction you're engaging in.
3: I've always liked the idea that in fact, they're critical to democracy. We have a secret ballot for a reason, that there is a space that we need to create around the individual that protects them from the prying eyes of anyone else for the ability to actually safely, accurately, you know, exercise your, your free will as a human being. And so not only democracies, but markets themselves require this in some way. As interesting, you were mentioning Enigma. I, I mean, Guy Zizkand was developing that when I was at MIT with him. So we were fascinated by the power of zero-knowledge proofs and you know the homomorphic encryption concepts that that he and others were coming up with and the romantic idea there. And I must say, I'm still very drawn to it. I think finds this balance. I think it can find a balance where, as long as we get away from the language that we're using here about identifying the human being and the need to sort of define who you are as a person and instead think about, okay, but how do we prove the veracity of the various claims that are being made in exercise of the attempt to make a transaction? And you start to sort of like depersonalize the concept. And it's simply the idea that as a society or as an economy, really, we can't transact unless we can prove the veracity of that information and then understand things on those levels, then these these other models, whether you want to call it self-sovereign identity, or it's rather just zero-knowledge proofs, become really powerful. And I suppose my question to you, Master, is because since you've been so active in the advocacy space, and you've just, as Sheila noted, you've on Capitol Hill just a couple of weeks ago, it sounds to me as if the key problem is the conversation and the actual language that we use to define these problems. How closer are we? Because you just said, like, we think anonymity is a bad thing and we, you know, privacy is obviously something that people are using to try to get her and skirt around. There's only bad people who do that. Is there any movement the other way? I mean, I mean surely Snowden, as, as Usha pointed out, has opened people's eyes to some of this. Do you feel as if there is anything of a change in the way people perceive these things? Or are we still stuck in this expectation that we have to identify people all the
2: time? I mean, I think if anything, the movement of the direction is unfortunately the wrong way. I mean, I think what we've been seeing, particularly in the context of financial transactions, is the U.S. government and governments all around the world taking the ideas behind the mass surveillance of the traditional financial system uh, and applying it to cryptocurrency and other decentralized technologies in order to make it as hard as possible to transact anonymously Um, There are many, many examples of that just in recent months, you know, including FinCEN's proposed regulations, FATF's proposals, and most recently the infrastructure bill. That was fun. Yeah, was slash (laughs) is, is still fun. You know, and the idea, the fundamental idea behind that is that anyone who is transacting with someone else needs to be recording those transactions and figuring out the identity of doing KYC on the people who are doing those transactions and reporting it to the government. You know, in the government's eyes, it doesn't matter whether you're a decentralized exchange and and it's really just code that's sitting between me and you. The idea is that any of these technologies are going to be sort of categorized as a broker and we'll have to report who these people are and what these transactions are to the government. And I think in the financial system, we've just sort of accepted for many, many years the idea that we need to have these transactions turned over to the government because terrorism. And we just sort of accept that that is normal. And I actually think that it's unconstitutional and that we shouldn't accept as normal that all of our transactions are automatically turned over to the government. We're unfortunately living in a time when it's very much pushing the opposite direction. It's very much the United States government and governments around the world pushing for every transaction to be associated with a particular individual, for that information to be reported to the government in this sort of system of mass surveillance that we just happen to accept because its financial transactions.
0: You know, I think it's, it's such a great point, Marta, that you're raising. And, and Michael, I want to kind of call back something that you were talking about. We can't consider anonymity in a vacuum, right? It is, it is anonymous to whom? And every time you drill down in that kind of turtles all the way down context, it winds up being the state. Ultimately, the state is the main actor who does not want anonymity to be the watchword, right? To be like kind of the norm. Because generally speaking, two individuals in a transaction on the other side of a transaction care a lot more about the finality of the transaction than about who the transaction was with. Not always the case. I may want to only, you know, transfer my, my grandmother's photos to my aunt, right? And nobody else, right? It's very important in certain contexts who is the recipient of something. But in generally, when when you're talking about money or finances, the, the amount that you care about the anonymity is much less than the amount you care about the finality and the ability to know that you have received whatever amount you're supposed to get, you have transferred whatever amount you're supposed to get, and you can just kind of walk away. And there is some system of trust in whatever that might be in place that enables that finality. The anonymity really comes down every time when you just drill and you go scrape the layers back, it's down to the power of the state, the desire of the state. And I use that term in its most generic sense to have visibility into the actions of residents, citizens, foreign actors, whatever it might be. And the reasons for that, I think, do vary. They're not always malevolent, but they're not always benevolent either. So, Kithi, really want to get your thoughts on on this part of the conversation we've been having. I've seen you nodding and leaning in, so I really want want to bring you into this too.
1: India's survived all these years without having everyone have an ID. We've not lived by the ID. In fact, one of the strangest conversations I had was in Germany with a... She was German. How do you get anything if you don't have an ID? And I said, what do I want that will need an ID? I mean, ID is another thing I want then. If I just want my food, why do I need an ID to have my food? You know, if I need health services, why do I need... If I'm ill, the doctor sees that I'm ill and takes care of that. I think there is something about countries and systems that have lived with IDs for so long that you're thinking that, well, you know, Since you need an ID anyway, you need, maybe you should do a digital ID. I actually think this is catching the wrong end of the stick. And the one definite thing about any kind of ID system is that it produces centralization. Whether it is centralization with companies, you know, whether it's centralization with the state, it produces centralization. And centralization is a very bad thing for democracy. We need decentralization. We need people in control of their own lives. We need people to be able to speak truth to power. We need people to be able to speak and to be heard. If everything is going to be determined about the person by just looking at how the system identifies them as being who they think they say they are, then we are missing the point about democracy altogether. Actually, I find that in places where where these systems exist, the first norm is obedience. And in the Indian context, We've learned through history that when something is not all right and we need to say it, we say it through civil disobedience. And that's the kind of thing that gets taken away when you have these centralized systems. So I just think that our imagination is getting boxed into this idea of whether it's this kind of identity or you know, this kind of idea, that kind of idea. I also find it deeply disturbing that you know, the UN, which for the longest time in, in the, the civil liberties manifesto that they have, the ideas of identity, which means that you have a way in which you, we have multiple identities. I'm not any, I mean, Sheila, you know that. You, you certainly don't have one identity. You have multiple. And we claim you as much as America claims. So, it, you know, this idea that an ID just determines identity is so false. All it does is to help states and systems that want to track you, track you. It doesn't provide people with freedom. It doesn't provide people with control over their own lives, it doesn't help. In fact, what it does is also the kind of systems where we used to have collectives working together to set systems right, have got replaced by this kind of top-down. ID systems are always top-down. It's not about my using it. It's about it being used on me. So why can't we get out of this imagination of the ID and think of other ways in which we identify ourselves?
3: So so maybe because the nation state is there, Sheila set it up well. I think that's a great way to frame it. The state is the one that ultimately is the one with the interest in that anonymity. And to your point, Usher, it is we can survive without it. But at the same time, that is the structure of the world. I'm thinking, as you say this, it's about refugees who are going to be leaving Afghanistan right now and trying to get out and getting across the border and being demanded by an immigration official to prove who they are surely they need an ID and they don't want an ID that's issued by the Taliban, right? They want some form of proof because whether we like it or not, that immigration official on, on the Pakistan border or on the Turkish border, wherever you're going to come across, is going to demand that you somehow prove because that's the system, whether we like it or not.
1: Yeah, Michael, you said it many times in the way you said it now, whether you like it or not, if okay. we do not like it, there's no reason why, why we don't work the change it. it is not all right that people are having to run away from a regime that they fear, that they are terrorized by, and they will be stopped and told, prove to me who you are. It is not all right. Refugees are about refuge. Okay. That's what's distorting this whole thing. If I'm hungry, I need food. If I'm hungry, you tell me, come and prove to me that this is who you are before I give you food. There's a problem. The problem is not that they are not able to identify themselves. The problem is that the system is being put in a place where they can't reach their food. I really think we need a completely different imagination on this. We've allowed the state and companies to shape our imagination. We are not able to think outside. We really need to get out of this.
3: That's a really good answer. And
1: no, also say this, see, now they're creating an ID system here, and we are finding so many people are dropping out of it because they just can't measure up to the system. If I were to try, I mean, I don't have a UID. I'm not enrolled on the system. But, and I've written, you know, the only place where I'm asked to embed this is with the income tax department. They only have, you know, it's all digital now. So I've sent hard copies of my, uh, of my returns to the department. And I've written long letters to them saying, listen, these are all my concerns about the ID. It's a simple thing. If, I have, if I'm enrolled onto the system, I'm asked to identify myself through my biometric. And my biometric has changed. The only way I can update that is if I have a registered mobile number on the UID database to which I will make a request saying, listen, my fingerprint is not working. They will send me an OTP on that registered mobile system. Then using the OTP, I'll go and update. Now the problem is I don't have a mobile. I don't want a mobile. Why to have an ID? Do I need to have a mobile? I feel mobile is a, you know, it's a socially destructive uh, artifact. I remember uh, Giorgio Agamben coming and speaking in one of our universities here and saying that the one thing that he would love to do is to have everyone throw their mobile phones into the nearest lake. And Mm -hmm. then he stopped and said, but then it will pollute the lake, so we have to find some other means. So, (laughs) you know, IDs are no longer just IDs, they are trackers. Although they start off with saying, this is so that you can have an ID to prove yourself. You're being asked to prove yourself in places where you should not be asked for this. And that's where you're most under threat.
3: So you said something back into my answer. I just just want to make a comment because I think it's extremely powerful this idea that the problem is not that the lack of ID for the refugees, but that they are refugees and that we are denying them food. And what struck me as you said that I just want to just remark on is that the acceptance of these systems, the real price we pay is in our own imagination because we are now compelled to think that that that's what has to happen, that we need to resolve this problem of identification. And not the real problem is that why do we go to war? Why do we force these people from their homes? And why don't we give them food and shelter when they demand it? It's the trap of the logic that is the problem. And I think that's just a very powerful point. So thank you for, for finding that hole in my argument. I really appreciate it.
0: But it really is, I think, a call for all of us, especially those working in the crypto ecosystem who are claiming to try and be building a better system, which is, are we pursuing incremental change within parameters that that are being thrust upon us by other actors that we're accepting? Or are we really pushing for systemic change? Personally, I think that we ought to be pushing for systems change, like to really think as big as we can to question the fundamentals of how we orient to each other in what constitutes An equitable, a just society. And I think you have to go all the way, you have to have a personal philosophy behind all of this. I don't think you can really do the work. The other thing I just want to note is that I can 100% confirm that Chitty does not have a mobile because on the family (laughs) WhatsApp chat (laughs) that she's not on, it comes up on occasion. If only she were here, she would know about what we're saying about whatever her latest speech she gave or whatever. So, you know, I've always admired that about you, Chitty. It's such a testament to living by your convictions because you're not wrong. I mean, I know full well, that I have two mobile devices and there's no question in my mind that, you know, there's all kinds of stuff happening with that information that's going through that and where it's pinging and whatnot. Uh, And I know that because I am a former privacy attorney. So I'm well aware of the consequences of that behavior. And yet, you know, here I am. Right. So
3: I'm privileged to have weekends, Sheila and a week, Sheila, in my contact list, but no one else. you know, Not many people lose. So.
0: Very rare. Most people don't. Know, they don't know there's another one. Actually, I'm not owning it. There are two phones. <laughs> no one or the other. Some are on both. Uh, but I'm noting again, Michael, that you've got three lawyers here again. So yet again, I lawyered you. This is another one of the episodes. Right, like without even realizing it, three with a bunch of lawyers. So Marta, I want to bring you back in here to just kind of again comment on what we've been talking about here and and your thoughts on this.
2: Yeah, I mean, I was really struck by that point as well. It's really interesting, like. We we also see sort of during the pandemic, like even just in the United States, we've seen that it's become somewhat impossible to pay cash anywhere anymore, right? Like if you want to sort of get through the world without surveillance, like and you know, and, and I think a lot about financial surveillance, it's really become very hard to to get by with cash. You know, for me, I think the thing, as I've said, that I love so much about cryptocurrency is it takes the anonymity of cash and imports it into the online world. But just like to further underscore the point about Uh, the importance of anonymous transactions, I always think about these pictures from the Hong Kong protests. And they were showing these really long lines at the subway stations where there were pro-democracy protesters who were waiting to purchase their tickets with cash because they didn't want their electronic purchases to place them at the scene of uh, the protest. For me, that really underscores you know, the point that a, a cashless society is a surveillance society. And I think it really shows the importance of having the ability to move through the world and to make transactions and to buy food or to, to receive aid without being tied to your identity.
1: Just thinking while you were talking, Mata, that, you know, with EFF being where you are, it's really time to do a civil liberties audit of all these technologies and of these ID systems, a civil liberties audit. And I was also thinking that, uh, you know, the way we've been pushed to this is through fear and uncertainty. And I don't think any democracy can function if fundamental idea thought is going to be colored by fear and uncertainty. And if we look even about, you know, even refugees moving across the kind of thing that the state says, where they'll say terrorists could come through. So it's like people in distress become dangerous people. We, we need to find a way by which we Find the language to change
3: this discourse. question that I wanted to throw here, we, we really need to wrap this pretty soon, but I'm at risk of opening another Pandora's box here. But Usha was talking about facial recognition technology. And this conversation has been about the state and the power of the state. As you know well, and you've done a lot of work in this space, there is the fear of the centralized corporation being all powerful as well. And I'm immediately thinking of the move that Apple made in this past month to, you know, in the name of some good cause, I suppose, introducing, yes, facial recognition technology of a kind to monitor people's photos on their phones to prevent the trafficking of child porn. And of course, a backlash because of all of the nefarious ways in which this and concept could go awry. What's your message on all of that? And how do we tie what we've been talking about with regard to state surveillance to this other idea We've talked a lot about the show of of corporate surveillance, of of surveillance capitalism, as it's being called. What's the lessons here and how do we apply the same to both realms?
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I think one of the many things we learned from the Snowden disclosures is that corporate surveillance is government surveillance. I'm thinking of specifically the PRISM slide that was the slide that shows all of the Corporations that
3: Google, Apple, the full the full monopoly of all of them, Yep.
2: that were working with the government on the, the Prism program in order to illegally spy on Americans. I think that's what we learned from the Snowden disclosures: is that corporate surveillance is government surveillance. We also, you know, EFF, where I'm Special Counsel even before the Snowden disclosures was suing the NSA for its mass surveillance program where it partnered with AT and and had a literal back room <laughs> and w- where all of the traffic going through was being captured and scanned. And I think when you get to fast forward to the Apple encryption back door, I, I think no matter how, how well-intentioned the reason, mass surveillance is, is mass surveillance, and this is mass surveillance. I'm horrified. <laughs> and I understand that it's, you know, for... A good reason, but I mean that's always the reason in the name of counterterrorism or in the name of protecting children, right? That's it's always protect the children. Let's just put this one small, tiny back door in our encryption. And the problem is once you've added a backdoor, it's trivially easy. Just small changes turn it into much bigger programs. And we know that the government partners with private corporations on these mass surveillance programs. And that's just the United States government. And Apple can talk all it wants about how it's going to be implementing these, narrowing it, whatever. You know, at the end of the day, you've added a back door and you're enabling a mass surveillance system.
3: A a door is a door, whether it's in the back or the front of the house, right?
2: (laughs) Or how small it is.
0: The smell. You, door, still, right? you can get
3: in it, it still it serves the same purpose you know well and
0: it's also you know to the point about moratoriums that you were raising it's like you, you don't you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube and once you've started squeezing it you know it's just it's very easy it's much more easy to get momentum and just keep going marta to your point right like once there's a back door that's a door and you know you're, you're there uh, and then you get that scope creep right we're all familiar with scope creep in a million different contexts well, it happens in this, this case as well and so uh, I love the idea. San Francisco put this ban on facial facial recognition and, and surveillance in the city, uh, in part because they wanted to do studies and examination about what are the pros and cons. They're looking at cities like London that are extremely highly surveyed to kind of see, like, have you actually realized you know these benefits and what are these benefits? Are they spurious? Are they real? Are they tangible? Uh, has crime reduced? Have the things that you know you claim are going to be happening? You can now experiment because there are many cities in the world that do have extensive surveillance. So. SF, where I live, has chosen to wait, at least at a minimum, and kind of see, and then make decisions about where that might be. actually helpful. Again, all within the context of the city's goals, which may or may not reflect the goals of communities within the city or without the city, right, that around the city that may or may not share those same goals. It's important to understand who the actor is that's making that decision. Anyhow, we could go on uh, for another hour. I have no doubt. This was such, like I said, a very special episode, you know, for me. Thank you so much uh, to Marta Belcher, to my aunt, Asharon Aden. As always, Michael Casey, thanks so much for joining me on this journey. Stay tuned for next week's episode of Money Reimagined. Thanks so much for joining us. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, Marta Belcher, and Usha Ramanathan. Our theme song is "Shepherd," and this episode was produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau with additional production support by Eleanor Paul and announcements by Adam B. Levine. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcast at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening.